Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. Take your Bibles and open them to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. As you look at your sermon insert, you'll notice that this is part two of our study in this passage. The title of the sermon is Jesus' Power to Convert the Most Unlikely. Let me read the narrative that sets our study this morning, starting in verse 1 of Mark chapter 5. It says, They came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes, When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs. And in the mountains, and the gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him, and shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were all drowned in the sea. The herdsmen ran away, reported it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed and in his right mind the very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described it to them, how it had happened to the demon-possessed man, and all about the swine. And they began to implore him to leave their region. And he was getting into the boat. The man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him. But he said to him, go, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you, and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. 
Let us pray. Father, again, we, we come to your word with a desire to have it implanted into our souls. So much going on in this passage, oh, to be there, to, to set the scene, and of course your word has given us great description of exactly what transpired. We find ourselves much like the people at the end of this passage, in awe. In all of your grace, your mercy, the fact that you show up, conversion happens, and a man is saved. Lord, we ask that you continue to teach us, to guide us, to have the Spirit inform us, teach us, and testify of your greatness in our own souls. Spirit, be with your, your under-shepherd. Father, Is desire to honor you with what is said. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. To say this is a, a dynamic interaction with Jesus and a sinner is an understatement. There's so much going on here and so much to have our minds settle on its truth. And the problem is that our minds want to drift in the unknown I mean, I read a passage like this, and I'm trying to ask questions. You're trying to see, really, multiple demons, possession, a man, possessing a man, and, and, you know, thousands of them? However, those questions deter us from the main purpose of the text. The purpose of the narrative is, is the fact that you have Jesus who shows up shows his authority, and converts a sinner. And by the way, as we saw last week, this whole issue of, of, of conversion and the importance of it and what Jesus does to a dead man and, and making him alive and, and receiving him as Lord and Savior, all of those are miraculous. Every one of them. You think about your own salvation. You might not have the backstory like this demon-possessed man, but every story of a sinner being converted to light and to hope and in Christ is a miraculous thing. Scripture says a dead man now becomes alive. And what a joy it is to be able to look at something like this where, where Christ exhibits his, his power. And the point of the passage is at the end. And let me give you the conclusion before we dive through some of, the, some of the meat. But it's at the end of verse 20. Here's the intended purpose of this passage. Where it says, and everyone was amazed. That is God's intended purpose when we read this passage. I mean, how can we not be amazed at the power of Christ? Amen? His power to convert and save the most unlikely I mean, we should walk away from this narrative story with an increased understanding of Jesus' deity, of his power to convert, and, of course, his majesty as being divine. To not come to that conclusion, you have missed the point of the narrative. And get this, it's not a coincidence. When you think about what we had just studied in, in Mark chapter 4 and the ending of that story, where, of that chapter where, where Jesus and his disciples were on the water, and you had Jesus' deity fully on display as he calms the storm. And the end result was a movement of fear from the disciples, from the storm itself, to look at Christ. So much so 
chapter 4 ends and sets up our scene for the passage in Mark 5 with the question, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I mean, the disciples were just utterly amazed. Who is this one? You would think that Mark would take liberty and, and we would have a, a finding answer, exactly a, a declarative statement of exactly who Jesus is, but he launches into another narrative, another interaction of Christ where he comes to the other side of the sea according to verse, verse uh, 1 of Mark 5 to a place that, as we saw last week, was probably the, the place that you, a Jew doesn't go, the Gerasenes, the Gentile land. A place where Jews, as we looked at in some detail, the whole issue of, of why would they even go to a place where even their Levitical law would have prohibit them to be there because there was pigs there. And not only that, there were, there were tombs and, and there was a graveyard and there was demon-possessed men. I mean, everything reeked of, of, and shouting, unclean, unclean, get away, get away. But not so. Not so with our Lord. He comes with a desire to display his majesty and his glory and convert the most unlikely. And so as we get through the, the first point, and what we saw last week, I want to kind of pick up our discussion, this narrative, and, and look at this improbable conversion. I mean, it, this is just a dramatic conversion beyond all things. Remember the context, like I say, that sets it up? Jesus, the question is, is set before us, and it's remarkable that we have a demon-possessed man who's going to answer the questions that the disciples had on who is this man that even creation obeys. Pretty interesting. But let's look at this. Let's set this up as we look at this dramatic conversion. Starting in verse 6 and 7, and in the light of time, we're going to kind of walk through this pretty quickly. But look with your eyes at verse 6. It reads, it says, seeing Jesus from a distance, just speaking about this de uh, demonic man possessed by, as we see in the text, multiple demons. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. I mean, this is kind of interesting. No doubt, I mean, if you can think about what has happened on the water, a storm that this demon probably no doubt saw, of all of a sudden just hushed and calm. No doubt this would probably be morning. He's up on a hillside. And when we go visit Israel in the spring of 2023, you're going to see this place. It's, it's the only place that has this, this vaulted hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee, which makes, makes sense when these pigs launch themselves over the cliff, that this has got to be the place. But this demon-possessed man sees Jesus from a distance and runs down and says, and it says, the scripture says, that he bowed down before him. Literally, he prostrated himself. He literally, in the Greek, it says he, he, he threw his face into the dirt. And he looks up at Jesus and with a loud voice. And the reason why we see it, the text says that it was a loud voice. But remember what we saw in Mark chapter 4, that Mark liked to use the word mega. And here it is, it's a mega voice. 
This is a loud voice. This is something that, that most anybody in, in, in a distance could hear. And he says, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? Now, this is important. Mark wants us to, to get this connection of what he ended in chapter 4 and what his disciples, the, the, the demon answers this question of exactly who Jesus is. And it's remarkable to think that it comes out of the mouth of a demon-possessed man. He says Jesus, which you and I both know, is, is a clear understanding that he's identifying Jesus as, as Yahweh or God saves. And the Son of the Most High God is a messianic title pointing to the anointed one that he is the only one. And it's remarkable to think about this. I mean, the demons had a right Christology when it came to understanding Christ. They understood exactly who he was and what he had come to do. The title of the Son of the Most High God should, should echo in your memory banks when you think about Christmas and the incarnation, when you think about Luke chapter 1, where the, the angel Gabriel was able to pronounce what kind of son or this, this boy's going to be, this man's going to be. Look at the screen. Luke chapter 1 records it there for us. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. The demons understood exactly who Christ was. And in so doing, they, they answered the questions that the disciples were so perplexed by. And then it says... A command. This is kind of interesting. The one who, who bows down before the one who is the king of kings and lord of lords is, is asking for a favor. And they said in the text, I implore you by God, do not torment me. That word implore is swear by God that you will not torment me. I mean, this is begging God for mercy. And as we saw last week, just in a brief mention of it, but it's interesting to me, when we looked at the hopeless condition of the man who, who was gashing himself, who was, who was breaking every shackle, who was tormented by the demons themselves, which, by the way, every demon's desire is to, is to torment the, the, the individual that they find themselves in. And they're asking for mercy and not being tormented themselves. They asked Jesus to, to swear by his own character to not torment me. What's remarkable about this, when we think about the, the, the parallel passages in, in Matthew and in Luke, Luke uh, Matthew 8.29 in particular, adds a little bit more color here. It gives us that, I implore you by God, do not torment me, but it adds this, have you come here to torment us before the time? Not only did they have a right Christology, but they also had a right eschatology. They had a, an understanding that there was going to be an end for them. And yet they were asking for mercy, that it may not be now. The comments made by these demons in this man 
of the tomb show us that the demons of hell understood that in Jesus' plan of redemption, God has appointed a day when Satan would be bound and all the forces of hell will be crushed and subdued. Every last demon knows exactly their end fate. And when the Lord comes to draw history to a close, we know that that is going to happen. Revelation clearly tells us that he will have ultimate power in diminishing the evil and demonic world and Satan himself. And so the demons live in, in, in mortal fear and in an encounter in Christ. They're wondering, hey, listen, this, this is not the time, is it? They knew their end, and they asked Jesus not to send them to their eternal destiny. Verse 8, look at it. It says, for he had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. The demons knew that Jesus was commanding them to come out, and they also knew their end result, and they're wondering exactly what is going to happen. And they're asking for mercy. Mercy. Verse 9 and 10, and he was asking him, what is your name? And this is interesting to me because he's not asking in, a, in an endearing way. What is your name? I want to meet you. I mean, he is showing, and, and, and Mark has given us this understanding of how much power Jesus has over the dark forces of hell. He says, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. This command to come out and asking the demon, what is your name, is to show us that, that the depth and the gravity of the situation of not only in the man, but the power of Christ to be able to subdue that many legions. Do you think about a, a, a legion, a Roman cohort, it's 6,000 soldiers. Very possibly it could be 6,000 demons in this man. I mean, this is where we kind of get off into the realm of speculation, and I don't want you to go there, but, but I have the same type of questions you have. Can that many demons possess a man? More than one? I think, like I said, it shows us the gravity, the depth, what's happening here and what Jesus is interacting with and his power to subdue those demons. But the point of the passage is what? Jesus. The point of the passage is his power. The point of the passage is that he is God. And then verse 11 and 12, we'll get more context. Not only is this man interacting with Christ by the tombs on, uh, on the shore of, of the Gerasen place where their town, where there's Gentiles, but verse 11 and 12, it says, Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain, and the demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Another question, a speculation, exactly why would they want to go into the swine, the pigs? I was amazed, maybe some of the speculation of where commentaries went with that, and, and, and I don't want to go there necessarily. I think that there can be some definitive understanding that, that to some degree, in the midst of going to the pigs and how they left uh, the pigs in a dramatic way was, was kind of a last hurrah for these demons, so to speak. We have no idea. The text doesn't tell us exactly what happened even after the pigs drowned, if these demons continued on to find another host. But it, there's a lot of questions that Mark doesn't answer, and nor does he intend to, because, again, it gets us off the fixed vision of the power of Christ and the point of the narrative. 
verse 13, Jesus gave them permission. You talk about having authority. When you have a legion of demons who are submitting to the authority and the power of Christ, Jesus gives them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits enter the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. I mean, you talk about a sight. I mean, we drive by over the Prime Bridge. We see a couple base jumpers, and we marvel as long as we don't crash, right? We, it's pretty amazing. But can you imagine 2,000 pigs launching themselves into the sea? I think that got everybody's attention when you think about it, what was happening here. But verse 13 shows us Christ's deity. And he gives demons permission to enter the swine. Again, questions come to our mind. Why didn't Jesus just lock them up? Why didn't he cast them aside and bound them to the abyss until the final judgment? Like I say, Mark doesn't give us. I think part of it is, is that Jesus has continued to fulfill his role and, and heading to the cross and the atonement that's going to happen and all that's yet to come. And so he's not necessarily... Um, going towards that, that, that end-time type of perspective where he will cast them eternally into the abyss. But what clearly the text shows us is that Jesus is in charge. And the demons entered the herd of pigs. They rushed down the steep bank and into a sea, 2,000 drowned. Now, that's a large herd, right? You think about doing the math of, of somebody's you know, income in those pigs, Remember, they are in Gentile land. A lot of times those pigs were slaughtered for the Romans and the soldiers and, and, and for the people. I read one estimate that the equivalent of losing those pigs was roughly $300,000 in today's money. A, a pretty substantial amount of money. And I read a little bit and trying to look at this, and, and, and as you can imagine, the social justice warriors came out and they have a fit with this text. They ask, how can Jesus ruin someone's economy? Surely he would have to come and pay restitution, right? They speculate, and they force a theology upon the text, and you want to talk about puking after reading some of that. Listen, it doesn't say anything like that. And the point is very clear. When you think about what is happening here, 2,000 demons into pigs launching into their death. The point is, is that Jesus is making a clear statement that one sinful man is more important than 2,000 pigs. Who, by the way, we're going to be anyway, right? You can look at it on the other side. Jesus saved them a, a slaughter fee. text goes on. The narrative says in verse 14, their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down clothed in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. Now, that should also throw up a a memory clue, because we remember exactly when the disciples were in the boat in Mark chapter 4, they were what? Frightened of the storm. And they show themselves up on the scene, and they have the same reaction. They're, they're fearful. They see this man 
By the way, verse 15 shows us the power of conversion from sin to Christ and what Christ is doing. They see this man clothed in his right mind. Remember the scripture in verses 1 through 5 where this man was, was just total out of control. He was violent. The other passages, the other gospels tell us he was naked. He had a deviant nature about him. Um, and they come, and here he is sitting, clothed, and in his right mind, able to converse and have conversation. He was born again. He was saved. There's no doubt about it that that, that only transaction comes, that transaction of transition only comes through Christ, where he radically changes a dead man, a sinner, into the light and life of Christ. This reminds me of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. That's such so radical about conversion, the fact that the testimony of Christ saving you, redeeming you, and bringing you to the point where you are now unrecognizable by those who knew you in the past. I've told you many a times, I, I visited Boise, that's my home, home city, I've, I've grown up there, I've interacted with some teachers back then, they ask you, well, what are you doing now, what did you make of yourself, right? And I tell them I'm a preacher and their mouth drops. They are amazed, and, and of course, you and I both know, our conversion leads us to the gospel presentation, because only Christ can do that. Only Christ can change a sinner and bring him into the kingdom. His soul was changed. And notice at the end of verse 15, the people became frightened. Again, reverential fear. And by the way, every uh, conversion, it, it, it comes to that point. I mean, every response of hearing what Jesus has done is a proper response of a reverential fear, of a reasoning of shock and awe because of what Christ has done. Because of what Christ has done. Verse 16, those who had seen it described to them how it would, had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. They, they weren't necessarily there to see it all transpire, but they saw the results of Christ showing up and saving the sinful man. And you would think that there would be a, a welcoming party for Christ, wouldn't you think? I mean, if Jesus can change this man's life, wouldn't we want him to be mayor of our city? Wouldn't we want him to be the king of kings of all over our territory? What was their response? Verse 17, and they began to implore him to leave their region. Really? Wow. I think part of that's coming out of their fear of what he has just done, the fact of what has happened. They don't know what to do with Jesus. By the way, we don't know exactly why they wanted him to leave, but I think that we can give indication of hearing the story. They were just as shocked and awed of the situation just as the man was. But no doubt they were trying to figure this out. And they don't necessarily know what Christ is going to do next. But wow, what a dramatic conversion. What, what the grace of Christ to come upon an undeserved sinner and changes life. That is the dramatic conversion that we see, but it even gets better. We next see in verses 18 through 20 is this, this most unexpected gospel commission. He commissions him. By the way, this is the first missionary in the scriptures. 
And it's not from the Jews, it's to the Gentiles. A Gentile who is saved to call back to go to Gentile land and proclaim what Christ has done in their life. Verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring. This is a different word for implore. This is parakaleo, which we know to be coming alongside. He wanted to come alongside Christ and accompany him. I mean, this makes sense, doesn't it? If you were radically saved by Christ, what do you want to do? You want to go follow him. You want to be in his back pocket. This man is dramatically saved, converted, and wants to follow the one who has saved him. And you would think Jesus would say, what? Again, get in the boat. Get in the boat. But is that what he says? He doesn't. Verse 19, he did not let him. But he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. In other words, go home and evangelize. Go home and tell the people of the great things that, that I have done for you, that I have given you mercy when, when clearly you needed mercy and you needed to be punished, however, for your sins. But I've given you mercy and grace and I've changed your life. Go home to your people and report to them. You want a definition of evangelism? There it is. Evangelism is simply going to others and telling them of the great things that Christ has done for you. I mean, when you talk about what Christ has done for you, they're going to be zeroing in, trying to understand exactly, if that Lord saves you, then surely he can save me. I was talking to a brother early this morning, and he noticed the title of the sermon, and he started giggling. And he tells me a story of a situation where he was a part of a church in California, and when he got saved, he walked the aisle. And the Lord grew him, and, and, and he, he goes home, and, and he comes back to church the next week, and this lady approached him, and this lady says, listen, you've given me great confidence. And he's like, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, you walked down, you received Christ, you prayed the sinner's prayer, you received grace and mercy from Jesus, and that encourages me. And he said, well, why does that encourage you? And with a stone-faced look, the lady looked at him and said, because if God can save you, he can save anybody. <laughs> I love that testimony. I love that. Because this is exactly what's happening here. Verse 20 tells us, he went away, began to proclaim, and to capitalists, excuse me, what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. You talk about a powerful Savior. You talk about a Lord who continues to, to redeem and save individuals. You think about the testimony that this guy had to be able to proclaim that the only reason that he is now unshackled, unpossessed, is because of Jesus Christ. That is what our Christ does. By the way, you and I both know that the Jews, if they were to be sent to the Gentiles, it would be a rub, don't you think? We already started this, this study in looking at the whole issue of, of the Levitical rules and, and their desire not to be a part of the Gentiles. I mean, this was such an issue in the disciples' lives. When you think about Peter in particular, it's not until Acts 10 where, where God gives them a vision. And, and remember that blanket coming down and all the unclean animals? And Peter says, I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to eat. And Jesus says, you must, you must. 
I mean, it took him a while for him to understand that this gospel that saves sinners is not just a Jewish thing. It is a people thing. It is both Jew and Gentile. And so it does make sense to some degree of, of why Jesus takes this man and says, listen, now you have been saved. Go tell the great things that I have done in your life. I mean, it's hard not to, to walk away with this, which is just amazement, right? This is how awesome our God is. And when you think about your own conversion, what, what a rejoicing aspect of your own soul should be is the fact that Christ saved you. Saved you. He had no reason to, but only by his grace, mercy, and love. And he demonstrated love to you by, by himself going to the cross and atoning for your sins. A Christian being delightful, a Christian desiring to exalt, a Christian desiring to praise. I mean, that's what's got to be forever on our lips is the exaltation of Christ, of the great things that he has done for me. And for those of you who are not saved, listen, you are just like this man that when we started this narrative, hopeless, sinful, and needing a savior. And the truth of the reality is, is that Jesus is the only savior. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Your greatest need is Jesus. And may he draw you, may he bring you to a place where, where you see the reality that, that I'm a mess in how I'm living life and I need your grace and I need your forgiveness. True conversion comes with repenting and believing. Repenting from your sins and believing in Christ as Savior. That is as simple as it is, but it has the power to radically change and overturn your life. So important. What's our takeaway from this? Exalt Christ. Our takeaway from this is to exalt the one who redeems, exalt the one who is saved, exalt the one who can, can, can save the most unlikely, exalt the one who has saved you. I guess in a small way, the other takeaway is to go tell others about Christ. May your week be flooded with this truth that you're there to proclaim Christ to whoever the Lord puts in front of you. Exalt Christ. It's interesting how the world, they try to um, put shackles on the gospel. You might say, Pastor Bear, hey, I, I, I work for a company that we can't even, you know, we can't share Christ. And I said, well, listen, you're missing the point here. Go to work and share Christ about the great things he has done for you. If they want to sit by you and eat lunch, so be it. If they don't, so be it. But you go to work and you exalt Christ, you proclaim Christ, you tell people about what great things he has done for you. It makes sense, doesn't it? They might not be asking, but they're looking. They're observing your life, and they wonder why you tick a little bit differently. Well, the reason why you tick a little bit differently is because you've been saved by the grace of Christ. And tell them about your Savior. Amen? Father, we thank you for the morning, for the joy of, of going through such a powerful narrative, a truth that no doubt what a delight it's going to be to see this man in heaven. For those who know you, 
We, we pray, Lord, that you will continue to strengthen and marvel at their salvation. May they continue to marvel at this great Christ who has redeemed them and saved them. May they understand all glory belongs to you. And in so doing, may they live and proclaim in such a way this great Savior. And for those, Lord, who don't know you, my prayer is that, why don't they? What in their own life is holding them back in the midst of, of their life that they would rather have pond water than the grace and mercy of Jesus? And so, Father, I ask that you would draw them to your truth, that you'd bring them to the, to the mercy seat where grace, love, and forgiveness is granted. May they turn their hearts to Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.